had the opportunity yesterday, which is uh, always a mixed emotional experience for me, mixed emotions in a funeral. It was a memorial service for Joe Ivey. Some of you know him, maybe many do not. I've known Joe for well over 40 years. Joe Ivey was a retired Delta pilot, retired 1992. Uh, we, I, Joe is, uh, was instrumental in starting Grace Church. He was instrumental in starting, founding the uh, Fellowship of Christian Airline Personnel. I mean, just impacted tens of thousands of people through the years. And it was an extraordinary time. Funerals can, I think, can really be faith-building. <laughs> and they don't always happen this way. And I don't, want to, I don't want to say something here that's going to make moms and dads feel like they failed because their children are not exactly where they want them to be. But I, this is to encourage uh, that uh, Joe Ivey, you know, his first wife, Barbara, she uh, contracted uh, Alzheimer's disease, and for 10 years and he took care of her. And then subsequent to that, well, we, he didn't know, I didn't know, we didn't know, he was preparing another spouse for him. And she was here, it was uh, Pat Brown. And th- they got married in the, in the last 10 years happily joyfully serving God together. Joe had four children. He has four children, and each of them spoke and had stories to tell about the integrity, the, the uh, faithfulness, the kindness of their father. I was, thank you, Lord. Uh, you know, I hear enough bad stories. It's just that children can stand up and call their parents blessed. Thank you, Father. And if, if God has graced you in that way, I've got to be careful here. I'm getting off on another sermon. But <laughs> if God has graced you in that way that your children come up and call you blessed and bless, your na- and bless the name of the Lord, uh, thank God for it. But keep praying for children who your children, grandchildren, pray that they'll, oh, that if they're not running hard after God, that they will. Don't quit praying that. Don't. Do it every day. Do it every day. Now, we're supposed to be in Revelation 21. Are you there? Why did I bring up the funeral? For this reason, among others. That, well, what do we think of when we think of death? Now, the American way, the American way is to think that when you die, you just go to heaven. Oh, we got that wrong. No. We'll circle back around to that very thing at the conclusion of this look in Revelation. But for those who have prepared, who know Christ, that was the joy of the funeral, to know that. Thank you, God. Now, what we're doing at this passage, in this passage is that I, I need to give you, um, let's just hover over the landing site for a little bit. I need to go about through about, I've got about four slides here. So I'm going to build my uh, lead in around these four slides. So uh, I can't, yeah, I can see pictures back there. Ah, okay. Let's look at the planet, this globe. Now this is going to come up more in verse one, but we're about to talk and see here in this passage of the new heavens and the new earth. 
And what we've come to in this point in Revelation, that's not a picture of the new heavens and the new earth. I'll explain that. <laughs> that's kind of the Pangea uh, picture of 30% of the planet is land, 70% is water. Keep tuck that behind you here. But in this passage, we've come to the conclusion, this is the last chapter in the story. Now we're looking over in this last chapter at a culmination that begins all the way back in Genesis. I've got a slide on that in just a moment to show you the connection between Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22. But here's the culmination of God's kingdom program. God's rule. He has an eternal kingdom. Rules over all the universe. But God mediates that rule, mediates through his servants, through time. Began with Adam. Well, he messed that up. Adam did, not God. Messed it up. God's work through time has been through mediating his rule, the kingdom, the theocracy in the Old Testament, mediating his rule, and he will come, Jesus Christ will come. And that next great event will be, I believe, in the rapture. Oh, this is kind of out of fashion theologically in some circles. But I believe that Jesus Christ is going to come for Thessalonians. I wrote the blog. It's not a bulletin article anymore. It's a blog. I'm trying to get my vocabulary straight on that. A blog doesn't sound good. Blog. <laughs> but uh, it, uh, it is about this sequence. The rapture. The Lord coming and taking his church. First Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, and then followed by the great tribulation where God's wrath comes upon this earth. It's an awful time, awful. Described in Revelation chapter 6 up through the 19th chapter. And then, at the end of the tribulation, Jesus Christ comes again. Rule to rule and to reign. Followed by his earthly kingdom, the Davidic kingdom. Oh, and it's described in just... Beautiful, detailed language in the Old Testament. And then this kingdom that comes, and then there's a breakout at the end of that kingdom. Satan is, he's been bound for a thousand years. He's released, and there is a surge of rebellion that he leads, but it's immediately squashed. And what we have then is the great white throne judgment. Satan and his demonic powers, forces, the Antichrist thrown into the lake of fire. And that great white throne judgment is the judgment of all unbelief. And then we move into the eternal state where the, the, the kingdom on earth, the Davidic kingdom, millennial kingdom, merges with the eternal kingdom. And that's where we are right here in Revelation 21. The dawning of the eternal kingdom. So we have that to keep, take note of. Now, let's go to the next slide. Uh, we'll see what we have here. All right, yes, we need to talk about, J.K. will appreciate this. Uh, we've, we, the, these far side things, they, they help sometimes. Uh, you know, when you begin to talk about heaven, I don't know about you, but I, this has been a common kind of confession I've noticed as I've read on the subject and listened to preachers through the years that uh, when you're about 10 years of age and you hear about heaven and you're sitting on a hard seat in church singing five hymns and all five verses of each hymn, 
<clears throat> and the preacher just never stops. And you're, you're, uh, you're working through that, and you're thinking in your mind, of a 10-year-old mind, that a million years of this, I don't know that I'm up to it. <laughs> and, uh, please erase that. Erase that. That interferes. Uh, look, at our, look at our guy on the cloud. He should have brought a magazine. <laughs> what are you talking about? It's crazy. But that's the way the that's the way these little silly little finite minds work, and it says says too much about us. It's embarrassing. Let's go to the next one. Let's see what we can build around this one, getting us into this. And ah, we got a couple of paradise scenes. All right, let's ponder this a moment. Now we've got a couple of issues. I'm going to sort them out quickly. I'm not going to take you through the details. First of all, we have to make a determination here. Is this being, what is being described in Revelation 21 and 22, is this actual? I mean, is this real stuff? New, new heavens, new earth? Or is it just describing, using uh, material physical terms, is describing some spiritual state, a spiritualization of it where... I, I'm not going to give honor to that view uh, that would have this be rendered into some just uh, to spiritualize it and saying that well this is just talking about what uh, the the believer living in a rarefied wonderful relationship in eternity forever maybe you know a cloud whatever I think this is actual stuff here. You know why? One big reason I believe that is because the Bible started out with actual stuff. A real planet, a real sky, real universe, a real garden with real fruit in the garden with taste buds that could respond to it. Real stuff. There's nothing wrong with that. The church got infected with Platonic Greek philosophy early on where matter was viewed as evil. And the body is evil. And to really be free, to really be free is to get out of this body and the spirit can just fly away like a bird. This infected the church in a lot of ways. All right, but that's another subject. So what, we've, what we want to see here is a really a return to paradise. Paradise restored. Keep that in mind. Because, see, we have ideas about heaven that are just all whacked out that uh, we go to be with God in heaven and then when you read this passage you see that heaven actually is God coming here and living on this planet and we're on this planet which is uh, entirely mostly uh, earth not the 70% water any longer and God comes down in this new Jerusalem this 1500 mile probably cube that comes down and whoa heaven We've got to do some rethinking. Some of us do. So, is the next slide, do I have the, uh, let's go through these paradise, these pictures, okay, just look at those. I'm going to say some. Is there one after this with regard to, or is it in the notes, where you see the the chiasm and you have it, is that, that in your notes? It is? Okay, all right, good. That saves me about five minutes right there. So <clears throat> just keep, keep aware of that chiasm that it relates Genesis 1 and 2 to Revelation 21 and 22. The Bible is not a random kind of book or story. It's tied together. 
It makes sense. And that's why you want to read it. Do you read it through every year or at least every two years? You need to do that. It's a story. And here's where we are at the end of this story. Now, I would need to say something about, you know, looking. I, I can see just a little bit of these pictures here. These are Kincaid's pictures there. Uh, I'm not saying this is the quintessential evidence of Christian art, but it, it helps us here. Uh, to understand something of what will this new heavens and new earth be like? Paradise. <clears throat> I read an interesting story <clears throat> in my reading this past week. It was a story, uh, I've forgotten the evangelist's name, but it actually, it's actually happened down here in Macon some years ago. This evangelist was preaching, and he's preaching on heaven. And there was this <clears throat> lady in the audience, she had been recently converted. And in the local social ladder of things, she was in the pecking order in the community. She'd come from the other side of the track. She was not well-educated but uh, or polished, but she was recently converted, and she was in the audience. Well, the evangelist, he wanted to describe to people by contrast what heaven's like. <laughs> this is the, what we would like to do to see some, what is it like? Tell me more. Well, he just went, <clears throat> he just soared in his rhetoric to describe nature as we see it. I mean, you can look on the screen and, you, and then just, well, I'm looking out these windows and I've never seen the grass this green in August. Well, it's been a long time since I've seen it this emerald green in August. And uh, I'm looking at these, the colors out the window. The evangelist is just describing heaven in all its splendor, all its wonder, trying to with making a, the Grand Canyon and his neighbor, whatever he had seen or read a book about and seen a picture of, he just kept on and on and describing this, by contrast, the splendor, the beauty of heaven. <laughs> and this, this dear lady, after a while, she was just here and she just write it as he paused at the conclusion of that description. She says, where is this place? <laughs> Where is this place that he's describing? If you read it right, if, if you've got some appreciation for language and description and wonderment, this, all right, let's look at it. Now I'm going to present to you what I think are six movements through these verses here. Six movements. Follow them carefully. The very first matter that's raised here is this. I think that what verse 1 is communicating to us is that the eternal future of God's redeemed will include the passing away of the old order. Uh, it's not complicated. How so? Let's uh, look at the verse. If you've got your Bibles open, I want you to make a mark in your notes or in your Bible. You'll notice, first of all, John's a spectator here. He sees this. I, I mean, I'm, I'm impressed with what these screens can project today. TV screens, smart TVs, and the big screens for the computer, and the colors, everything's so vivid and rich. I mean, how much better, how much can the human eye see and appreciate? I don't know. But, I'm, but John sees this. In, in what three dimensional? It's in color. He hears words. He says, I saw new 
Interesting choice of words here. He's the, there are a couple of words for new. This is the word new in quality. New in quality, because that brings us up to a question. Is John describing here an annihilation of the old world, the old earth, and the universe or the heavens? I think he really uses the word heaven here, but I'm taking it and comparing it back to Genesis. He's talking about the sky, what, what we see. So there will be atmospheric changes, there will be earthly, uh, there will be to- obviously topographical changes, but it's new in quality. So is it annihilation? I, I can't spend time on this. It's, it's an intriguing line of thought. There are those, and I used to think this. I've, you've studied the Bible. You keep living, you're going to make some little adjustments along the way. And in 77 years, I've made some adjustments along the way. <laughs> that I used to think this was describing annihilation. But I have just, uh, I've read some arguments and put in the past, it's more like a renewal. You know, the difference between annihilation and renewal. Everything goes up, everything's gone, bulldozed down, flattened out, scraped down, all over, everything, brand. I'm, I'm taken by the renewal, and I, there is a legitimate uh, analogy to the resurrection body and what God does there. And that's going to go on and live forever when we, we receive it. And it's not going to be annihilated. It's, a, it's, a, it's, the me, it's me. It's me. It's the best me possible in the resurrection body. The person, physicality, everything, eyes, ears, everything. And so the new, new, I understand this to be a renewal of all things. Um, uh, really some serious upgrading uh, in the whole thing. You ever watch that program on TV? Beth and I watch it from time to time. I can't remember the name of it. They, they come to you get the house, and, uh, and they tell these people, well, we, we can do this, we can do that, we can do And they go away, and it was the one of the two brothers. They really got the magic touch. Uh, what's that? Property Brothers, and they say, well, we're going to do this. But I love it when it gets to the grand finale. And they, and you looked at this place. I, I, Beth and I, we said, I said, Beth, come here, you got to see this. <laughs> you won't believe it. And they come driving up, and then they see, and you just, you say, oh, I can't believe it. Oh, look what they did to the kitchen. And look what they, I I can't believe this is the same place. They can't find words. That's an interesting experience. They can't find words. They know what it's not. What is it? And so they just come unclued when they see this. I think that this is what John is describing here. And the earth and the sky, it's a new, well, let's go on with this. New heaven, new earth, for the first heaven, the first earth, passed away. And there is no longer any sea. I don't think we need to spiritualize that and say, well, this means that there's no more sin and no more badness and everything's all better. It will be, but that's not this. That the oceans, you know, have a way of separating nations and mitigating what could be catastrophic, uh, the, the outcome of sinful human beings, um, it's, there will no longer be a need to keep the nation separated. It's going to go on to describe that later in the chapter, and in chapter 22. The nations will be separated. So 
it's going to be mostly one great landmass. I don't think that rules out uh, bodies of water because we know that we're going to have a, a river that's going to flow right out of the New Jerusalem. And so there will be water. There will be, if, the water is not bad. And it's just how it's located, what it does, how God uses it. And so, no more sea. So, do we have a handle on this, this first movement here? Let's be sure we've got it. So, what John sees is this. He sees the complete disappearance of the, the old being that is replaced by the new. And what he's going to give to us is there is this absence of any topographical condition necessary prior to this to keep the nations so that they don't reunite. And I know the Babel experience, Genesis in chapter 11. But the hydrological and meteorological factors will be changed. I can try to do a little sanctified speculation if you believe that the earth was, as it says, was watered by a mist that came up from the ground and there was no rainfall in the first in the garden. And prior to the flood, some believe a vapor canopy, put vapor out in the outer sky in the atmosphere. So there is going to be a, set, a different set of meteorological circumstances. Remember now, it's perfect. We're not talking about the millennium. You have the curse partially lifted in the millennium where things do flourish and prosper. It's, it's an amazing. But this is the eternal state. It's all good. And that is what I think he is, he is describing here. A wonderful remodeling and upgrade, the likes of which we can't comprehend. Secondly, secondly, that the eternal future, look at verse 2, the eternal future of God's redeemed will include life in the new Jerusalem. Look at the text. John says, I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem. Same word new is used up there with uh, the adjective for new heaven, new earth, new in quality. What is this? The abode, the place, the living, the high rise. <laughs> high rise. That's a weak word to describe this of this, uh, where the, the redeemed will live, move in and out of the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Ah, okay, we can get that, can't we? And it was just as big event in the time John wrote this for the bride to come all adorned and come to the wedding moment with uh, jewelry and with... Uh, uh, the, the beautiful garments, and so she is presented, and so he gives us this mental picture how it's going to look. So here is what happens. What he describes then is this holy city. It's the physical expression of the nature of God. Now, it's an actual place. I'm, I'm not, I'm not uh, uh, blowing this away by any means. And God is the holy architect. So it's holy. He's holy. It's set apart from all sin and failure. It's set apart for God and his people as the place of their abode for all eternity on this planet. The ultimate gated city. <laughs> gated community. The ultimate one. And this is that place. 
I, I think this is when Jesus said, in my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. I go to prepare a place for you. Come again. This is it. It comes down. So this is the city that people have been looking for since the time of Adam. Abraham was looking for it. Remember that in, in Hebrews in chapter 10, verse six, uh, 11, verse 10, 16? He's looking. He lived in a tent all his life. How do you like to live in a tent all your life? Now, I've been reading, an, I'm reading an article about Los Angeles County and what they're going through out there with all the homeless people who are living in tents, and it's really a dismal. I keep waiting for something to get better in this story to describe what they're going to do about the problem. You've, you've, you've seen this in the news, not only in Los Angeles County, but San Francisco, other places. And you live outdoors in a tent, okay, you know, for middle-class Americans who go on camping trips. I'm not talking, okay, you had a good time, but you don't want to live that way all year round. But this is, this city, look, this city, this city, this Abraham looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. And he lived all those years as a pilgrim. He had that looking to that city. And so here it is. And so this is this one verse. Get this. This is one verse for the new universe, but now we're going to get 25 verses on the new city. <laughs> it's like, hurry up and get there. Describe it. Look at the real estate. This is a real city. Bride city that's described. You know, you kind of wonder something at this point. Uh, that why don't you hear more preaching about heaven? Now, you're going to say, oh, but we got movies. We got books. You know, I went to heaven and came back. Here, buy my book. I'll tell you what it's like. I, I take a very dim view, and I'm being very kind when I say that, of all oh, the sensationalization. But I will say this that for real presentations that are biblically grounded on what heaven is like, you don't hear about it, don't think about it. I, I, if you read, if you do some reading across the uh, Christian uh, uh, centuries, and you look at the way people lived, you know, when your life expectancy was about 40, and if you, you had about 12 children and about 10 of them died in birth, and the next headache or the next fever was couldn't mean death. And here we are, Americans, and we've got you know we got Tylenol, we've got Advil, we've got a hospital. It's about eight miles over here. Now I'm not complaining about that, but I'm telling you some things I think have conspired to tamp down our interest in heaven. I I think that we do get preoccupied with this present world in a dangerous way. Here, this is, uh, maybe this will help too. I got a coin here. And if I were to stand outside, I can just do it with this light right here. I'm putting this coin up in front of my eye. I don't see that light. Now, this coin is not as big as that light. It's not as bright either, obviously. If I go outside and I do this and I put this coin up against my eye, this is all I see is this shiny little coin. And I think this is exactly what happens to us. It's a danger that we get focused on a lot of things, varying degrees of importance. 
We get so focused on these things right around us that we can't see the bigger. Just think of the size of this compared to the sun. And you can actually block the sun out by just this coin over your eye. I think that's what happens to us. Whoa. This is why we really need to walk with God. Walk with Him closely. Stay in the Scriptures. Love Him. Oh, and so on. Lest we get... Well, here, a couple of other things here besides that. I think we're too comfortable. I'm not saying let's go back back to the woods. But... I think that somebody put it, it says we're we're drugged by well-being and prosperity. Drugged by well-being and prosperity. And you can just get in so many comfortable things. Who, who's that actor, that male actor? He gets in that car. Oh, my, he's so well-crafted, you know. He's really looking dapper. And uh, Conor McConaughey, is that the one? Got the, got the good voice. And, uh, and he, he gets in that new Lincoln. And it's just the buttons. And you can just feel yourself in that thing. Whoa, that's, that's really living. Now, we have other versions of that. Whatever is, whatever is new and, and, and lights your fire on these things. But you can see that those things aren't evil in themselves. But how, how this kind of comfortable living and the pleasures, the entertainment. We've got entertainment out the wazoo. It's this entertainment right there in your hand, smartphones, on, 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 and on. And the programs and uh, entertainment, we can get too comfortable. Well, can I talk to you about heaven? Whoa, I don't want to talk about heaven. <laughs> this is uh, heaven. Oh, no, it isn't. No, it isn't. And I think also, one of the, another thing that interferes, I think we may be somewhat embarrassed about heaven. What? I'll tell you why I think this. That because we've heard this criticism of Christians, this pie in the sky. You ever heard that? Are you so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good and just get hammered? So, whoa, I don't want to, if I, if I talk about heaven, that sounds like I'm just escapist. and I don't want to deal with reality. I think that may just very well have a killing effect in some matter. There are other things, but that's all I want to say with that. Let's go and look at the third movement here with this future, eternal future. The eternal future, verse 3, the eternal future of God's redeemed will include the presence of the Lord. <laughs> I guess it does. This is it. <laughs> It's not about just going up and running up and down streets of gold and all of that. That's the way we tend to think about heaven. And we're going to see, you know, we're going to see Uncle Percy and Aunt Sally. And we, we will. It's the best family. And, uh, you know, see our loved ones and, you know, as our spouses die and our children. And certainly we have those sentimental desires and they're understandable. But let's get it right. What makes heaven heaven? is the presence of Jesus Christ. Look at this. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. This verse just drips 
drenched, it's drenched with Old Testament language and with ideas, truth, with regard to what God has been doing through time, going back to the tabernacle in the wilderness, the word that's used here, that's it, the dwelling, the skena, it's the word translated tabernacle. But it's not like the tabernacle in the wilderness. But the point is, is that there's God who came down in that, in that unique way. And in the, then in the temple, the Shekinah glory. Remember that, how it's described in the Old Testament? It was an amazing thing. God chose to localize some of the evidence of his presence in that place. And then the ultimate tabernacling among men in time, in space, on this planet... Well, was the coming of Jesus Christ who tabernacled among us. That was God walking, talking, yes, sleeping, eating. All of that, God among us. And so here's what he's saying. The glory of God's presence among men. I think it means this. I think that actually this is the whole story of the word of God right here. And that here's the summation of the drama of redemption. This kingdom plan that God is working through and bringing it to a climax here. Described in Revelation 21 and 22. And that God dwelling among us. A new arrangement in this relationship. God's presence with us. Fellowship. And what God does is that he saves the best gift of all for the end. And that best gift is himself. Ah! Let your sanctified imagination blow up a little bit with that thought. Christ, glorified. And he's among us. Yes, you can, in this place, you will go and you can see him. You can hear him. That's not the millennial kingdom. He will function there in a unique way. But this is as in the new Jerusalem described. And so it's described with gates and walls and foundations. We don't, we're not going through the rest of the chapter, but that it goes there. So what he is describing here then is this plan of God which flows through the historical covenants. Hear my language. The historical covenants the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the the new covenant, as God's plan works through these covenants, that's the thread, ties it together through those covenants. And so, here he is, they shall be his people, he will be their God. You just, you see it resonating right through it. So the greatest thing about heaven is what? Is not the presence of, I know you want to go talk to some outstanding, this is what preachers think, I can't wait till I get a hold and talk to the Apostle Paul. Paul, why did you say it that way? You could have cleared up so much <laughs> if you hadn't said it that way. I don't know that that will be our bent, but we, we think about going to saints. And there are people I want to talk to. Understand. But it's not the presence of saints that we know and friends, but it's the Lamb of God who's there. Oh, this is difficult. I, 
Okay, let's go. I'm telling you, it's difficult. I'll explain it to you next. Number, verses 4 and 5. Verses 4 and 5. The eternal future of God's redeemed will include the passing away of the effects of sin. And he shall, I quoted this verse at the funeral yesterday, he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no longer any death, there shall be no longer any mourning or crying or pain. First things have passed away. He sits on the throne, and he said, Behold, look, look, see, I'm making all things new. That's reminiscent of what the uh, is recorded in Acts 3 and 21, the restoration, restitution of all things. And he said, right, for these words are faithful and true. It's almost like John is just so caught up in it, he kind of gets an elbow in his ribs. Choo, right, oh, okay, yeah, whew, I got carried away. <laughs> I've seen all this. this is, I've never seen anything like this. I think what John had to live with, the glory of seeing all this, and only he saw it. He's telling us what he saw. He writes. Here's the point. Here's a new spiritual environment that waits the redeemed. Now, I want to say something. Um, i try to encapsulate something here best I can. Have you noticed that in the descriptions, you, you see these knots. It's like we're looking at the, we're looking at the new heavens and new earth through a knot hole. <laughs> N-O-T. It says what it's not. It's not this, not this, not this. You know, when you go to other places in the Scripture, like in Ephesians, the inheritance that we have, or First Peter, First Peter, which says that we have an inheritance that's not perishable. And you get these descriptions, and it's usually in terms of what it's not. And so we're left saying, well, what is it? I think this, that I think that the New Jerusalem, the way it's described, and the knots, this person, kind of person's not here, this kind of person, and so on. And it says in 1 John 3, 2, mustn't forget this, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. Well, what is it? <laughs> There's another knot. And 2 Corinthians, I must add that, chapter 12, verse 4, you remember that? Paul was taken up to the third heaven. You read that one lately? Does that blow your mind away? He what? Pick up the third heaven. He saw heaven. Tell me. Unlike, unlike those who are one of purveyors in books, he said, you can't talk about it. Keep your mouth shut. What? <laughs> no. Don't say a thing. He's caught up and he couldn't express it. No, which says, which no man was permitted to speak. Now, why does God pull the curtain over it like that and just give us these little... I can remember going to the racetrack over at Lakewood many years ago. And, uh, and, you, and you, they had these, they had these uh, the canvas or whatever. It was hanging over the fence. This is where they had an old dirt track where they used to have car auto races, stock car races. And you just could get, and then you could just see a little bit. I think I can see it there. I see a lot of dust. <laughs> it goes around the turn. Woo! Flipping around. And you just were always teased by it. And it's like God does this on a sublime level. <laughs> Forget the dirt track. 
the sublimity of it is that we get these little teensy-weensy views of it. And it's like God says, you couldn't handle it. It's got as if, as it were, and I'm certainly not trying to put words in God's mouth. If I were to tell you everything that heaven is exactly like, you couldn't handle it. And first of all, given the, our, our, our limitation and our sinful natures, we would just do crazy things with it. And we get so focused on all that. We say, whoo, I want to live there. <laughs> That's my place. First dibs on that. <laughs> and uh, whatever we might do with it, whatever. But God just says, it's not this, it's not this, it's not this. And so God's people die with the serenity and the rest and the peace and the hope of knowing that God's going to take real good care of us. <laughs> he always does. Let's go and look at the next movement here. Look in verses uh, 6 and 7. The eternal future of God's redeemed will be filled with soul satisfaction, the enjoyment of a completed inheritance, and fullness of fellowship with God. Uh, Let me explain a couple of things if you look at the text. He said to me, it's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. Greek students, I. Hey, Eric, he'll give you, ask him sometime. He'll give you the Greek alphabet. Uh, the alpha, first letter. Omega, last letter. What's he doing with this? He's saying that God is the one who's the creator at the beginning. It's, just, it's a wrap-up. It's kind of the marquee for the kingdom. God began it. This plan, this kingdom program, God had no beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that's come into being. It was life, and the life was the light of men. The, dark, the lightness shines in the dark, but the darkness didn't comprehend it. God has no beginning, but kingdom rule and reign through mediating, mediating servants. He's, he's doing it, and He has His hand on everything in the process. Everything, everything, everything. Sickness, sorrow, joys, happiness, disappointments, questions, troubles, whatever, all of it. So here's what he's saying then. God who has his hand securely on the steering wheel of the universe. He's sovereign. And what he starts, he is able to complete. I think that's the Alpha and Omega. What he starts, he's able to complete. And he alone can quench the thirst of the human heart. Thank you for the songs this morning. Well, they were really clicking. (laughs) We need to sing them all over again. Well, sometime. And he alone can quench the thirst of the human heart. And he mentions here, if I follow, track with me a little further. He says, and the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. Uh, what, he's, what he's focusing on there is that the gift of eternal life is exactly that. It is a gift. It's free. Free. I'll come back to that. So overcomers will inherit God's new creation. I think, in a nutshell, what he's saying with this is that as we're overcomers, as described in two, you don't have to overcome to go to heaven. Work your way. He just said it's without cost. Okay? Some make this really complicated here. It doesn't need to but there is a sense in which you can you have ownership of the kingdom. Ownership of it. To rule and reign with Christ. There are rewards. 
And there is a way in which we serve God that we can come into a grander, more upscale capacity to bring honor and glory to God through faithfulness, a life of faithfulness. And God has given the grace to take the gifts and the opportunities, the time, everything that God's given to you, made you to do, and to the extent to which we live faithfully, there is reward and we can come into this grant. He's using uh, a covenant language here of the Davidic covenant. And he says that, you'll notice that he is, in uh, the verse 7, he overcomes and inherit these things, and I will be his God and he will be my son. That is, ownership in experiencing greater intimacy with God and that the sonship breaks through in enormous, enormous ways. So, what does he say? Eternal life is without cost. But you are you hungering for God? And to the extent that you hunger and seek after righteousness and glorify God, there will be greater glory given and greater rewards and greater enjoyment of the eternal state. Oh, now, I've stirred you up a little bit. We can talk about that later. All right. Verse, look at verse 8. The eternal future of God's redeemed will not be available to those who die in their unbelief. Ooh, this does not end well right here. Uh, Look at the groups, he says, the cowardly, the, the eight of them. And what's, what's he doing here? That unbelief expresses itself in many ways. Unbelievers who die without the remedy of forgiveness will experience eternal death. That's the point. He's not saying, if you just work at not being a liar, and if you work at not being a murderer, then you can get your ticket punched and you can go into the New Jerusalem. That's not what he's saying. It's not a do Salvation is done. What he's describing here, here, walk through it quickly. We're just about out of time, but see this. The cowardly are those who counted this world and what it offers more important than the reproach of Christ. See, they don't want to go there. Christianity, I want to stay in control. And they're cowards. The willingness to look at themselves as they really are. And then, he says, the unbelieving are those who refuse to put their trust in Christ. The abominable are those who are disgusting to God and have, def- and have identified with the evils of religion, man-made stuff. Murderers are those who counted their li- the lives of others as having little or no value. Immoral persons are those who have chosen to place their sexual pleasure above the moral law of God. Sorcerers are those who seek guidance and wisdom from demonic powers. Idolaters are those who have replaced God with false gods. Liars are those who reject truth and attempt to create their own reality. All unbelievers, these are symptomatic conditions of what it means to have the big, final, ultimate pushback against God. I don't believe. No! going to have it my way and may even go out with bravado and say I don't believe in God and I'm not afraid to die oh the deception deception (sighs) all right with this with this we must say one thing in conclusion how do you go to heaven how do you get there can I take the lady who said this not in Macon years ago where is that place well here's my question How do you get to that place? Let not your heart be troubled. 
Believe in God. Believe also in me. My Father's house, many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. Thomas said, what? We don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? (laughs) Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, no one comes to the Father but by me. You want to go to heaven? You want to? It's reach out with the empty hand of faith. Oh, dear God, thank you that Christ, Jesus Christ, came with the perfect life without sin. Because you only, God only receives perfect people into heaven. <laughs> and Jesus was perfect. We're not, but we can get his perfection. Theologians call that imputed righteousness. Christ's righteousness is put to our account. When we reach, I say, Lord, I want to receive that gift of eternal life. I am helpless and I am hopeless and I can't do anything to save myself. That's a huge turnaround. See what you're doing? See what you're doing? You have this enormous mental change. See that? See it? It's a 180. And you're turning in the process and it's believing. And when you're believing, you're turning. And you're saying, I can't save myself. And whatever I've relied upon is not capable of saving me and taking me into the eternal city with God. And I come and I receive the gift of eternal life and forgiveness of sin. Thank you, Lord. It's without cost. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. And I now put my trust in Christ who bore the penalty for my sin so that I may have forgiveness and eternal life. There it is. How do we get there? Through Christ. The simple act of trust. And then what do we do? Oh, oh, we, we do anything that we can to please God and live for Him and glorify Him. God, instill this aspiration within us anew. Stir us, stir us, Lord, with fresh, fresh enthusiasm, zeal, ardor, energy to love you, to live for you. And oh God, I pray that you will do amazing things in our midst as we share this hope together, this hope that Christ is coming. Lord, I pray that there's one here without Christ this moment. He or she will look to you to receive the gift of eternal life. In the name of the Savior we pray. Amen.